fully that we weren't able to uh, discuss in all the length that would be needed to allot to those types of things. So we're going to deal with a few of these things from our passage this morning. So I want to go back to Hebrews chapter 5 and read, um, read that passage again and then make a, a few more observations concerning some components and aspects of this passage, namely the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, right? And these are important because what happens in Christ is a pattern for the Christian life, right? In him is represented what we will go through as well, not to the extent that Christ did. None of us will ever suffer the way that Jesus suffered. However, he is the head and we are the body. And what happens to the head must necessarily happen to the body as well. He had his days of the flesh, and then he was exalted to glory. So we have our days of the flesh, but then there is a weight of glory that is awaiting us that we will enter into one day. And so how should we think about these things, both to help us in this present life so that we will be patient and endure our hardships and sufferings now, but also to give us hope and comfort for what lies ahead, right? Because our salvation has only just begun, but it will be consummated in the life to come where we'll experience the full blessings of the salvation that has begun within us and is based upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's what we want to deal with uh, today. So let's read Hebrews chapter 5, verses... 5 to 7. Hebrews 5, verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that today, Lord, you would equip our minds for action. Lord, as we consider the sufferings of Christ and the glories uh, that followed him and that he has now entered into. And Lord, that this may be instructive for us as we are to walk in the same manner that he walked and that the life that you set before him is in some measure the same life that you set before us. Lord, though we know you will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, and that Jesus was able to bear a far greater weight of suffering and affliction and hardship and temptation that we could ever even come close to enduring. Yet, Lord, there is a similarity between his life and ours, and the pattern and in the manner in which he walked is the way that we need to walk. So, Lord, we pray that you would teach us this, Lord, that we might put on the very life of Christ and that we might walk in the same way that he did. And, Lord, we pray that you would Give us the strength that we need, Lord, to endure the hardships of this life, Lord, to bear up under them just as our Lord Jesus Christ did, Lord, not to grumble and complain against your providence, Lord, or against uh, your chastisement that you bring upon us as our Father, but just as you tested and tried him, and just as he learned obedience through what he suffered, Lord, we pray as well that we would learn obedience through our sufferings, and that they would produce in us, Lord, a hope and a comfort Lord, for the life to come. So, Lord, teach us today from your word and be with us. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, first here we see, and again, verse 7, in the days of his flesh. And as we mentioned this morning that Jesus had a season, he had a time of hardship and difficulty 
where he was exposed to the many hardships that are associated with this present life. And it's very important for us to understand that the sufferings of Christ were very real and they were very necessary. They're not a mirage. They're not a show. He's not just giving the impression that he's suffering, but really it's no problem for him. He's able to go through it and it's not any sweat off his back. No, no problem at all. This isn't the case with Jesus. He, as a man, suffered unbelievable uh, torments, hardships, afflictions, persecutions, more so than any of us will ever endure or experience. And his hardships were very real, ever much as real as the hardships, the struggles, the trials, the tribulations that we will face in this present life. So these were not a show, but he experienced the very depths of agony, of grief, of sorrow, of trouble in his soul. And this more than any man who has ever lived on the face of the earth. So none of us will ever suffer to the capacity that Christ suffered. It's impossible for any of us to be afflicted in the same manner in which he was afflicted because we have limitations. And God knows those limitations, and he will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. But Christ had no limitations. So he, more than anyone else, suffered hardships and afflictions and temptations that we will never know or that we will never endure. And he had to do this so that he could be a sympathetic high priest, so that he could know what it is to have our weaknesses, what it is to experience the hardships and sorrows of life, right? Because he suffered when he is tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It is his understanding of these things, his experience of these things, that gives him the capacity and the ability to be able to help us in all of our trials and in all of our hardships. And there are some traditions or some who put such a focus, uh, again, not that we can overemphasize the divinity of Christ. He was God in human flesh, so we should focus on the divinity of Christ, that he was divine, but they do so to the expense of his humanity. And they do so so that what he experienced as a man wasn't real, it's not like us, it was easy for him because he is the son of God. And so they deny or they take away from the passion of Christ or from the sufferings of Christ. But we have to understand that his sufferings were very real. They were very hard, that he was sorrowful. Just as we've been reading in Matthew chapter 26, when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're seeing the full humanity of Christ and all of the agony and the grief and the sorrow and the troubles that were tormenting his soul and his mind as he considered the sufferings that he was about to endure on the cross. And again, this is greater than any other man because no one ever faced the types of sufferings that he experienced. Though there are other men who died as martyrs, whose life was taken away from them unjustly and unwillingly in that way, yet no other martyr and no other saint, even those who have died for the Lord, none of them ever bore the full wrath of God against sin. Only Jesus did this, so his sufferings are of a different kind. He had this spiritual component that none of us have. Right? When we suffer for the Lord, we have God's favor and blessing upon us. But when he was suffering there on the cross, though there is a sense that God was still pleased with him, he also experienced complete desertion from God. In that God, this is why he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of sin, God forsook him and God poured his wrath 
out upon him. And this is why his sufferings and sorrows were greater than anything that we will ever experience, which brings us comfort, right? Comfort and hope, knowing that he will never call us to suffer more than he's already suffered for us. So it's impossible that we would suffer for Christ more than he suffered for us. And that brings us comfort and hope in seeing how loving and kind he is toward us. He bears the lion's share, and he only gives us a small fraction or a small portion of these same sufferings. A passage to consider, Psalm 22. Psalm 22, the whole of it is a prophetic psalm, a messianic psalm, where David, by the Spirit, is recording for us the anguish that Christ is experiencing while he is, he's at the height of his sufferings. Okay, and we understand that as well, that Jesus' entire life was a life of hardship, affliction, sufferings. This is why in Isaiah 53 it says, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Not that he did not know any of the joys or any of the comforts of this present life. Certainly, he had friendships. Certainly, he went to celebrations and enjoyed those kinds of things. However, his life was accompanied with many sorrows and hardships, so that it can truly be said of him that he was a man of sorrows. And Psalm 22 describes him in the greatest of those sufferings, right? He learned obedience through what he suffered. And he was obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross, right? All of the sufferings of Christ culminate in his crucifixion. That is the greatest trial, the greatest suffering that he endured when he was crucified and put to death. And there he bore the wrath of God for our sin. And in Psalm 22, it describes this suffering as it is being relayed through his humanity, right? Through what he suffered as a man. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praise of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from my womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from my birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me at a, as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. 
I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. So there we see how he is describing his situation. Forsaken by God, crying out to God, but it seems that God is not hearing, not God is not listening to him because he does not immediately deliver him. Right? And he's describing what he's experiencing, right? what he is feeling, what it is like to be in the midst of this suffering. Not that Christ ever doubted God's love for him or doubted God's deliverance for him. You see that as well. But in the midst of hardships and sufferings, this is what it appears to him, right? He's going through these things, and it is as if God has forsaken him, as if he's crying out to God, but God does not hear him, God does not listen to him, and that his enemies are going to conquer him, have the victory over him. They've surrounded him in this way, and he feels this loneliness, this separation, this destitution in the midst of all these sufferings. These are the very real cries and groanings of Christ in the midst of his hardships and trials. Also, Psalm 69. Psalm 69. Another messianic psalm where it describes much of his sufferings and what he is experiencing in the midst of those things. Psalm 69.1 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fell while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongly my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. O God, it is you who knows my folly. And my wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, I became it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. Deliver me from the mire, and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up nor the pit shut its mouth on me. 
Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me and do not hide your face from your servant. For I am in distress. Answer me quickly. O draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. So there, he describes his heart as being broken. Broken hearted and sick. Looking for sympathy, but no one to have any sympathy on him. But there, just in the midst of his afflictions, his hardship, his sufferings, and even to compound it, even what relief they would give to him because of his thirst, they give him gall and vinegar to drink, which doesn't alleviate it at all, but only is a way of mocking him. So here again is describing the very sufferings of Christ. Now this is important for us for two reasons. One, when we see the sufferings of Christ, it confirms to us, it proves to us how much love he has for his people. This is what he endured for us, right? One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It says in Romans chapter 5, he did this for our sakes. He was exposed to all of these hardships for us. He was not exposed to these things as he existed for all eternity in heaven. He willingly took these things on, voluntarily subjected himself to all of these hardships, and he did it for our sake, humbling himself to the point of a servant for our redemption. Right? He did not have to do this. Right? He willingly did it. He did it of his own volition. So it is voluntary love for Jesus to take on human flesh. And even if he would have taken on human flesh and lived in palaces, enjoying every comfort and every pleasure of this present life, that would still be an act of humility and condescension from where he was at before. Because before he came to earth, where, where did Jesus dwell? In the highest heavens. He was there with God the Father for all eternity. So for him to take on human flesh and to come to this earth, even if he was in that form, the greatest king in the history of the world, even that would be an act of infinite condensation for him to come that way. But did Jesus come and live in palaces? Did he come and have uh, the lifestyle of the rich and famous, enjoying all the pleasures and comforts of this life? No. He came and was exposed to all of the evils of this world, and he did this by necessity. He did it for our sake. He did it for the benefit of his church, right? We are exposed to the evils of this world necessarily in our very natural birth, but he was above all these things. He came into these things voluntarily according to the will of the Father, and according to his own desire to redeem us. He descended from heaven, from his glory, into the pit of misery and despair, and he did all of this for whose benefit? Who benefits from this? 
We do. We are the sole beneficiaries of all of these things, right? Yes, it brings glory and honor to God, but God already has all glory and honor. And yes, it brings glory and honor to Christ, but Christ already possesses all glory and honor as the only begotten Son. So why did he do all of this? It was for our sakes, for our benefit. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich. In terms of his glory and honor, he was rich for all eternity. And yet, he became poor. And for whose sake did he do this? For our sake. He became poor because the only way we could get out of our poverty and become rich is by him taking on our own nature, becoming poor like us, and then raising us up to eternal glory. So the sufferings of Christ confirm to us, they show us the great love that God has for his people and the great love that Christ has for his sheep in that he, the shepherd, willingly came and laid down his life for our sakes. And in doing so, he was exposed to sufferings, afflictions, hardships, persecutions that we could never even know or experience. He suffered more in his little finger than all of us combined will ever suffer in our entire life. And this he did for our benefit. Also, just as a side point, it should also show us how horrendous and egregious our sin is against God. When we see what our sin did to his only begotten son, that he experienced all these things, right? He did it for our sake, but he did it because of our sin. That's why he had to do it for us, is because of our sin. It should cause us to hate sin, and it should cause us to love our Lord Jesus Christ, and then want to live a godly and obedient life to him. Okay, so the first thing the sufferings of Christ confirm to us is the great love of God. But then also, they are an example for us to follow, right? His life is a pattern, or it is an example of the Christian life, and we are to walk in the same manner that he walked, right? The days of his flesh, this corresponds to our present condition, when we also are exposed to all the evils and sufferings of this present life. Should Christ, the head, right, the captain of salvation, should he have the days of his flesh and we, his body, his people, expect nothing but ease, comfort, tranquility for God to give us everything on a silver platter? Is it right that the head would suffer so much and that the body would go unscathed into eternal glory? No, this isn't right. It's not fair. It's not just. And it's necessary for us to fill up in ourselves the sufferings of Christ. Just as the head has suffered, so now the body must suffer as well, and we will have our share of sufferings in this present life. And when that happens to us, we should not be surprised. We should not think that this is contrary to the very will and purposes of God, but this is the will of God for us. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. But God is so good to us that He intermixes our sufferings with comforts, with joys, with many blessings as well. So our life will be a mixture of hardships and blessings 
as given to us by God, and he knows perfectly how to discipline and how to uh, perfect and teach every one of his children. He knows what they can handle, and he will never give us more than what we can bear. But we shouldn't doubt the love of God whenever we go through hardships and trials. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, here we have to stop. The reason he has to say this is because what typically happens to us when we go through a fiery ordeal? We're surprised by it. We're going, what's going on? Why is God doing this to me? And we think that this is some strange thing happening to us, that this is something contrary to the Christian life or contrary to the promises that God has made for his people. But he's telling them here, don't be surprised by it and don't think it's something strange that's unique to you, that's happening to you. But this is what has been the lot of all of God's children from the very beginning of time until the very end of time. And it was true of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, then verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian... He is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So there, the fiery trial, the ordeal, is a test. It is a test that God gives to us so that we learn obedience through what we suffered. We'll see this in Hebrews chapter 5. This is what happened with Christ. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And so we also must learn obedience through the things that we suffer. And we should not be surprised in these things, but instead, when we endure them, we should entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing what is good and what is right. And who is the prime example of entrusting his soul to a faithful creator while doing what is right? It was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the example that is given for us to follow. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, he mentions this explicitly. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25, says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Here, again, Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. Right? Not that his suffering was merely or only as an example for us to follow. Primarily his sufferings 
or to bring about our redemption. But as a consequence of him doing this, he also left us an example so that we ought to follow in his footsteps. And just as he endured suffering, so we also are to endure our sufferings. And how was Abel, or how was he, Christ, able to endure sufferings? Well, first, patience. He was patient. He waited for God to deliver him. He did not take matters into his own hands, but he waited patiently for God to bring about his deliverance. In Isaiah 42, it speaks of Christ in this way as being a quiet man, a mild man, even as we just read in 1 Peter 2 that he did not revile in return. He was quiet. He just trusted himself into the hands of God and knew that God would deliver him in his time. He wasn't complaining and murmuring and wasn't anxious like that against God. Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So there, he's not crying He's not raising his voice. He's not moaning and complaining against God and against the providence or what God has ordained for him. He's not doing that at all. And then with his own people, he's not doing that. He's not impatient with his people, but even those that are described as broods reeds, he won't break them. Even if there is only a dimly burning wick in the person, just a little bit of the grace of God there, will Christ extinguish that in that person? No, he won't. He will never do so. He's not disheartened. He's not crushed while he waits for God to bring these things about. And this is how he was in his life. He did not seek his glory through his own means, but he committed his soul to God and he waited patiently for God to deliver him from all of his enemies and for God to give to him his glorification. So he did it with patience. And so what must we have as well? We must patiently wait, patiently wait until we enter in to the full consummation of our salvation, just like the farmer. Doesn't the farmer have to patiently wait for the rain, for the harvest to come? So we also must be patient. Also, he trusted in God. During his time of patience, he entrusted himself to a faithful creator. He knew that God would deliver him. We read that earlier from Psalm 22 that God made him trust in him from his mother's breast. From his infancy, he trusted in God, and he never wavered in that trust, right? He never wavered in unbelief in any regard. And as we talked about this morning from Matthew 26, there when he was in the garden, he could have ran away. He could have escaped. He could have gone and fled to a distant land to get away from his tormentors. But instead, he's praying, if possible, Let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will. Whose will did he trust? He trusted the will of God. And that whatever God determined was best for him, this is what he would subject himself to, and he would willingly go and do what God called him to do. And so how will we overcome 
the sufferings and hardships of this present life. Well, what is the victory that overcomes the world? It is our faith. It is our faith. We must trust in God and whatever God determines for us, then we have to receive it from his hand of providence and know that God will deliver us, right? No matter what our hardship or difficulty is. And then third, prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. This is as we read this morning from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Jesus was a man of prayer. He often withdrew to lonely places, to desolate places, where he would pray. We have him recorded going up on the mountaintop and spending the evening in prayer. We know that the night before his crucifixion, he's in the garden. While his disciples are sleeping, what is Jesus doing? He is crying out to God with loud cries and with tears. And so what should we do in this present life as well? We should cry out to God. Prayers and supplications, loud cries and tears to the one who is able to save us. This is why God puts us through the straits. Because when everything is easy and we have comfort and there's no hardship, we get very uh, fat and lazy, right, in our spiritual life. But whenever we're put through the straits and we go through hardships and difficulties, it causes us to cry out to God and to depend upon him. And this is why it is good for us that we are afflicted so that we learn to trust in him. So first then we see that Jesus had a season of hardship and difficulty where he was exposed to the many hardships of life. And in this, it proves the love that he has for us. And it also gives us an example that we should follow. And our life now corresponds to the days of his flesh. And just as Jesus triumphed and overcome this present world, so we must triumph in the same way, by patience toward God, by trusting in him, and by prayers and supplications to God. Now, the second point. Currently, Jesus is no longer exposed to hardships and sufferings. The days of his flesh are past and gone. The days of his flesh ended with his death. After he died, his tormentors could do nothing else to him. There was no more sufferings for Jesus to endure or to be exposed to. It was simply a matter of waiting for his glorification, waiting for God to raise him from the dead. Right? His resurrection was into an absolute, eternal, unchangeable glory that can never be taken away from him. So it is impossible for Jesus, as he is presently existing, both as God and man, but as his humanity, as his manhood, he is above this present world and he is no longer subjected to any of the hardships, the afflictions, the sufferings that we experience in this present life. The only relation he has to these things is only through his church in that he sympathizes with us, but in his own person, there's nothing that they can do to him. There's no uh, sufferings that he can endure while he is at the right hand of God the Father. The days of his flesh have given way to a never-ending day, right? An eternal day, a day of never-ending glory. And as such, Jesus is no longer exposed to the many hardships of this life. Now, these things that he is no longer exposed to are numerous, but we'll sum them in three points. First, the curse of the law. The curse of the law. When he came in his incarnation, he was born under the law, and he also experienced 
the sufferings, the curse of the law. Both in terms of the things that we experience in this world, right? That this world is cursed, and this is why it is filled with grief, hardship, tears, sorrow, labor, right? We experience all those things. That's a part of this present world. But then also the wrath of God that was due to our sin because of our transgressions of the law. Let's see this confirmed in Galatians. Galatians 4. Galatians chapter 4. Show us that Jesus was born of a woman and he was born under the law. Galatians chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 3. It says, So also, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And then also Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Here, Jesus was subjected He was born under the law, and he was subjected to the curse of the law, right? Not in the same way that we are. He wasn't exposed to the curse of the law because of his sin and his transgression of the law, but he was exposed and suffered the curse of the law because of our sin as our substitute, right? He became a curse for us. We were cursed because of our many transgressions of the law, and he became a curse for us by being hanged on the tree and suffering the kind of death that he suffered there on the cross. And this is our hope and freedom, that just as Christ is no longer under the law and he's no longer subjected to the curse of the law, so also his people are set free from the law and we are no longer subjected to the curse of the law either. It no longer has dominion or rulership over Christ, and it doesn't have any dominion or rulership over his people, right? In that we have been set free with Christ. And this is the topic of Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verses 4 to 6. Romans 7, verse 4 says, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we might serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter." So we were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. This is why Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law, and suffered the curse of the law because this was the curse that we were under. And we could not free ourselves from this curse. 
because we're sinful and because we have nothing to offer to God by which we can be freed from this curse. And what did Jesus offer to free us from the curse of the law? That's Hebrews chapter 10, the offering of his body once for all. He was born under the law, was subjected to its dominion and to the consequences of its violation, namely death. And then he presented his body up to death in order to set us free from the curse of the law. Well, is Jesus still under the dominion of the law today? Is he still under the dominion of, of, of uh, death today? No, his body, his human existence, his human nature now is no longer subjected to death. Jesus, having been raised from the dead, can never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He has been set free from the dominion of the law. And when we are united to him by faith, we die with Christ. And then who else is set free from the dominion of the law? We are. And death no longer has dominion over us permanently. Now, it does temporarily, right? Right now it does in that our bodies are decaying and our bodies, if this present world continues, eventually all of us are going to die. That is a 100% given fact and reality. But it will not be permanent. It will not be eternal. It will only be temporary. And with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. So even if we die and our bodies are buried in the ground for a thousand years, it's still just temporary in comparison to eternity, in which we will be raised with an immortal life, the life that Christ has now, which is an absolute, eternal, unchangeable, indestructible, glorified body that is no longer subjected to death and no longer subjected to the curse of the law. So he is now above that and is no longer under its dominion in his present glorified state. Also, he is no longer subjected to temptation. Jesus can no longer be tempted any longer, right? He's no longer tempted in any way, shape, or form. We know from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that it says there that our enemy, our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The devil, his very existence, is like a lion looking for someone to devour. And during Jesus' days in the flesh, who did the devil want to devour more than anyone else in the history of the world? He wanted Christ more than anyone else, right? He was the target of all of his malice, his cruelty, his craftiness, his vengeance was all targeted toward our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He threw everything he had at him. And how many times did he have victory over Christ? Zero times. He never sinned one time. He overcame all of the craftiness, all of the wiles of the devil, which shows us how much greater Jesus is. Because Adam and Eve, in the garden, with a perfect righteousness, right? In that they didn't have the flesh. They didn't have a corrupt, sinful nature. Their bodies at that time were not even like our bodies today. They had not experienced the curses that come as a result of sin into the world. Yet in that state, they could not stand for one day against the devil. When he came against them, they succumbed and they fell to his craftiness. But Jesus... He never sinned one time, even though the devil tempted him with many hard temptations. He brought all of his craftiness, 
And he's had many years, right up to that point, 4,000 years to perfect his craft. And all of the people that he attempted and had victory over for all of those years, and he brought all that to bear upon our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when Jesus was in a very vulnerable situation. Because we know from Matthew 4 and Luke 4 that when Jesus was tempted, he was 40 days and 40 nights with nothing to eat. And he was very hungry, naturally so. And yet the devil could not gain any foothold with him. Luke 4 verse 1. Luke 4.1, here is a recording, a testimony of the temptation of Jesus, but this is just one recording of it. This isn't the only time that he was tempted by the devil, but he tempted him throughout the course of his life, even using his own disciples at times. Remember that Peter, when he was rebuking Jesus for, wanting, for saying that he's going to go to the cross, that Jesus has to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because what you're doing is a temptation that's coming from Satan, right? You're not setting your mind on the things of God. Luke 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for, I, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. So, here is a summary of the temptations that he faced during this period of time. And these temptations are an emblem of the many kinds of temptations that we face in the world. The various things that people are tempted to commit sins for these reasons. And Jesus did not suffer, he did not commit any sin during any of those things. But then notice in verse 13 it says that when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. So he did not leave him permanently. But he went, he regrouped, and he looked for more opportune times. And whenever an opportune time presented itself where he thought, foolishly, that he might gain some advantage over Christ, when he was at his weakest, his most vulnerable, then he would strike again and bring up these temptations. And this is what he did throughout the course of the life of Jesus. He tempted him to sin. But can Satan tempt Jesus today? No. He cannot tempt him to sin anymore. He cannot harass him in any way, shape, or form. And that ought to be a great hope and comfort for us as well. Because now, he does harass us. We are tempted by Satan and his demons and the world and the flesh. We are constantly harassed by sin. And we hate it. We want to be delivered from it. And one day we will. We will be like Christ. One day we will be glorified and there will no longer be a devil 
to tempt us anymore. And then thirdly, the troubles, hardships, sorrows, griefs of this present life. In the days of his flesh, Jesus was exposed to these things, but now he no longer is. Only insofar as he sympathizes with his body in our weaknesses, in our hardships, right? We are still exposed to them. And in that capacity, he is exposed to them. This is why in Acts chapter 9, when he's confronting the apostle Paul, who would be the apostle Paul when he saw, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Not that Saul was going up to heaven and persecuting Jesus personally in his person, but when he was persecuting his church, he is persecuting Christ because Christ is the head of the church. And in that sense, Jesus still sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, in our temptations, in our hardships, and in our sufferings. But in his person, he is above those things. He is no longer exposed personally to grief, to sorrow, to hardships. It is no longer true that Jesus is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But now he is in his exaltation. Judas cannot betray him any longer. The scribes and Pharisees cannot harass him continually day in and day out. The soldiers cannot mock him anymore, right? Pilate cannot unjustly send him to be crucified. The people can no longer spit upon him, slap him, scourge him, reject him, whip him, say all sorts of evil things against him personally. Now, people say all sorts of horrible things about Christ on this earth, but he's far above those things, and they cannot attack him in his person because he is at the right hand of God the Father, far above this earth. Heaven is his throne, and the earth is his footstool. This world is a place of hardship and misery. This is a place of sorrow and pain. But Christ is in heaven at God's right hand, free from hardship, free from those things that he was exposed to during the days of his flesh. And this is our hope as well. Our hope is that just as Christ is in his humanity, so we will also be. That where he is, we will be with him as well. He has united our humanity to his own person, right? He is both God and man, and he has lifted our humanity. He descended into this earth. He was exposed to all the miseries of this life, to the curse of the law, to temptation, to sorrows. But now he has ascended into heaven, and he is far above all of these things. And so also, we will ascend with him. He descended into our misery so that we might ascend into his glory. And that is when we will receive the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. And this is what we look forward to. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. Well, let's pick up in verse 16 says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We're not losing heart. 
though we want to lose heart sometimes, it's very difficult, it's very tough. And it was like that for Jesus as well, as we read earlier from Psalm 22. It seemed to him as if God had forsaken him. But he did not lose heart, and we're not going to lose heart either. Because we know that whatever afflictions we suffer in this life, they are light and they are momentary. In comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is coming in the life to come. Right? Whatever afflictions we face can only endure as long as this present life. For some of you, that's not very long, right? Because some of you are getting closer to the end of your life. Even for the youngest among us, even the children, what is the life of man but a vapor or a shadow? Even if they experience an affliction from the day of their birth to the end of their life, it's still light and momentary compared to eternity. And it, compared to the eternal glories that will be ours through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why we don't lose hope. Even if our sufferings reach the level of persecution, of loss of life, well, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and to enter into the glories of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Also, Romans chapter 8, Romans 8 verse 9 Romans 8, verses 9 to 17 says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are, under, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we might also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of the present time are not worthy of comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. And the Spirit is given to us as a seal as a testimony that we are children of God. And if the Spirit who gave life to Jesus from the dead dwells in us, then he who raised Christ from the dead, what's he going to do for us? Same thing. He's going to raise us from the dead as well, give life to our mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in us. And that body that will be raised from the dead will be like the body of Christ now, which is an absolute, eternal, unchangeable glorious body that is free from all the sufferings and miseries associated with this present life. We will be like him in that way. And then lastly, Revelation 21, 1 to 4. 21, 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. 
For I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. There in the glorious life of the new heavens and new earth, this is what we will be raised unto. There's, he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. There's no death. There's no mourning. There's no crying. There's no pain. The first things have passed away. Those things belong to this present life. Death, mourning, crying, pain. All of that came into the world as a result of one man's sin, one man's transgression. And as a result of one man's righteousness, all of those things will be taken away and we will no longer be exposed to them, but instead it will be eternal bliss, eternal happiness, eternal joy, eternal peace, eternal comfort, eternal pleasures that are there at the right hand of God forevermore. And this is what we have to look forward to. So we should not give up. We should not lose hope. We should not abandon our faith because it gets difficult in this life. Because whatever sufferings we face in the days of our flesh, these are light and momentary in comparison to the glory that will be revealed to us. And just as our Lord Jesus Christ endured the sufferings of the cross, he endured all the despisement and the shame that was accompanied with that because of the joy that was set before him. So we also can overcome whatever crosses and whatever hardships we face in this life for the joy that is also set before us because his joy is our joy as well. So then let us press on until we enter into the kingdom of God. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. And Bruce, I'll ask you, would you pray for us today?